0: Hello folks and welcome back. I'm Simon Ward, your host for the High Performance Human podcast and each week I'm joined by guests to share knowledge and wisdom to help you on your journey to living longer, living healthier and of course improving your triathlon performance. Before I introduce this week's guest I'd just like to take a moment to say thank you to listener John Ardron whose generous donation has covered the cost of this week's podcast. John This episode is dedicated to you, and I know how much you like Tommy, so um, I hope you enjoy this one. Now, in the four years since we launched the podcast, we've managed to do so without any adverts at all, and I'd like to continue in this manner, but the costs of producing each episode are growing annually. If you're interested in making a one off or a regular donation to the podcast to help cover these costs, then in return, and if you would like me to, I will dedicate the episode to you and we can avoid the thorny issue of advertising. You can find a link in the show notes or you can email beth at the triathloncoach.com for further details. This week I'm delighted to be rejoined by Dr. Tommy Wood. This is Tommy's second visit to the podcast and if this one's as popular as his first, you're in for an absolute cracker. Recently and hopefully, you've probably noticed a growing focus from me on a holistic approach to training and lifestyle. Some might call this ancestral health and as Tommy is a former president of the Physicians for Ancestral Health Association and follows a similar lifestyle, he's the perfect person to chat with. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. So let's get rolling and hear from Tommy. Welcome back to the show, Dr. Tommy Wood. Uh, thanks for having me back. I'm, I'm really glad to be here. No, you got some rave reviews last time. People love your, they love having the English accent on. Um, we've, <laughs> we've had a lot of people from the, from your side of the pond and a lot of people from Boulder because of the triathlon community I'm involved with and training oh, peaks course, and everything. Yeah. So uh-huh. uh, yeah, you, you got rave reviews for the calm demeanor and uh, knowledge that you present everything you talk about. So yeah, it's lovely to have you back on the show.
1: Well, that's good. I really appreciate it. And hopefully uh, there'll be more of that after this one.
0: So this podcast is as much for my learning, Tommy, as it is for the listeners. I hope you don't mind, listeners, that, that I'm being a little selfish in this. But I've been reading a little bit more about um, ancestral health, about the carnivore diet, on different approaches to nutrition. And of course, nutrition isn't a silo on its own, is it? It's got to be part of everything else we do in our lives. Otherwise, the total effect doesn't, doesn't seem to, to be as great. Um, I'm not entirely sure of what ancestral health is yet. And as a former president of the Physicians for Ancestral Health, I'm sure that you're one of the best people uh, to be able to explain that. But at the bottom of all this, it, it, you know, from talking to clients that I work with as triathletes, it, and just keeping my eye on the news, it feels to me like, firstly, the health of the Western populations, and I include the UK and Northern Europe in that, as well as uh, you know Australia and the United States and Canada, um, is is sort of just dwindling, really. And it seems also that Western medicine isn't isn't that good either; that it focuses more on Curing rather than preventing, and I feel like as humans, we could be doing an awful lot more to protect the health systems than ourselves. and ourselves. And the limited amount of red on ancestral health seems to suggest that that would be a good place to start. So, mm-hmm. firstly, could I ask you to just give us a, a brief, um, if, if it's possible, uh, idea on what ancestral health actually is?
1: Sure, so ancestral health, uh, some people may call it evolutionary medicine. Um, is essentially this audacious idea that the things and the environments that we were exposed to during our more distant and more recent uh, evolutionary history are important for our long-term health. Um, so that will include diet, that includes movement, it includes our social interaction, it includes uh, sleep and circadian biology. Uh, inclu- it usually includes some kind of way. Uh, to mitigate stress, you know, there are multiple things to do with uh, prayer or, um, you know, sort of like community ceremonies and things like that, all, all of these, um, you know, meditation, all these kind of feed into that, into that bucket. And what I think is, is very nice um, with, there are multiple, right. So ancestral health is, is one uh, arena, which I sort of, uh, I'm, I'm a part of, but there's also um, other Alternative medical approaches like uh, integrative medicine, functional medicine. Um, these um, these have these same core tenets. Those like four or five things that they believe you know are critical for for human health. Um, and so it's it's funny as somebody who sort of dabbles in in all of those. Uh, so like I'm um, I'm a, a director of the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine. Right, lifestyle medicine uh, it sort of has those same fundamental beliefs that these things are important for for human health and preventing and treating disease. And each of those groups thinks like theirs is the approach that is right. Mm-hmm. Right. Integrative medicine or functional medicine or lifestyle medicine or ancestral health. But the thing is like the most important things that all of those do are essentially the same. They're focusing on those same core aspects of lifestyle and environment and how they're important for health. And so that's, that's why they have benefit in a number of different arenas. Um, And then as you sort of move along to traditional medical systems and medical approaches, you know, you'll often hear people say, well, if it actually worked, it wouldn't be alternative medicine, it would just be medicine, Mm -hmm. right? You hear that all the time. And what I have seen being part of these things for like the past sort of 10, 15 years is that these are now becoming important parts of, certain aspects of the medical system So in the UK there's a huge number of GPS who are becoming increasingly interested in diets be that uh, elimination diets, for autoimmune disease, low-carb diets to help treat um, or, or prevent uh, type 2 diabetes and metabolic syndrome um, as this sort of you know these things come in from the fringes and as patients demand um, knowledge and access to information about these things, doctors are starting to take it on, right? Doctor, like I, I I went to a recent ground rounds with lots of doctors where they talked about the importance of circadian biology on health, right? So into that, you take sleep and light exposure and all those kinds of things. Hmm. Um, talking about meditation and managing stress, talking about movement, talking, you know, you're talking about these different aspects of diet. So all these things from all these alternative spheres are now slowly becoming part of a more traditional, med- uh, you know, medical approach as and when there is time and space to do it, which is usually the limiting factor. So I think, A, it tells us that this is really important. Um, and, uh, you know, B, that, uh, you know, as much as sometimes uh, people in arenas that I hang out with like to bag on the traditional, you know, healthcare systems, you know, they are starting to take this, this stuff into into account, which I think
0: is important as well. So my understanding is that, in what, I don't know, can we call it traditional medicine? Because if this stuff predates traditional medicine, that's the <laughs> traditional medicine, isn't it?
1: Well, I I don't, I mean, obviously, sometimes in order to get a point across, you have to systematize something. And, you know, a lot of this is being done by doctors and then all of a sudden it becomes medicine. I don't, I don't really think it's medicine. I don't really think it needs to be under the purview of a physician because this is just, the stuff that humans need, right? It's it's yeah. part of our core basic needs. Should doctors be in charge of that? I don't really think so. um However, that's the system in which people get access to this kind of stuff traditionally. So, that, so it kind of comes under the medical umbrella, but it doesn't need to be. Um,
0: for the, for those people listening, you have been through what most people would call the traditional med- medical education system, haven't you? In the UK, and then yeah. moving yourself across to the United States. There, so you mm-hmm. you are part of that system as well.
1: Yeah, uh, absolutely. So I don't uh, work clinically currently, because the the, the process of, of getting my license in the US was just too arduous. And I spend most of my time doing research anyway. Uh, but I did, I uh, went to medical school in the UK, I was a junior doctor in central London at Guy's and St. Thomas's for a couple of years um, before I did my PhD and, and sort of took a, a lateral uh, shift into research. Um, so I have an experience of that, but also like my, I am a faculty at the university of Washington It is an academic medical center. All of my colleagues are doctors. Everything we do is, you know, to, you know, further the treatment of patients within the traditional healthcare system. Uh, and then within the British society of life summits and everybody I work with there, they are all practicing doctors uh, in the UK. So yeah, that's absolutely something that I am part of. And I've, you know, it, Different people need to do things in different ways, but for me, being part of the system allows you to then help it or change it from from the inside, uh, and also understand where it's coming from. Like when you have these arguments, of people like, "Well, you know, doctors don't know anything, and they don't think about this stuff, and you know, they're all useless, and they don't care about us." And and there are certainly experiences that people have that are valid that sort of um, agree with that. However, most doctors want to help their patients. They want people to be healthier. Um, you know, they work really hard. Uh, you know, to try and you know improve things, and you sort of you can only really appreciate that as your as your part of it. It's very easy for you know uh, for people outside it to to mm. sort of you know throw those accusations around. Um, but most people do care. They do want to help, and they are learning. Um, And that is helping to improve stuff, even if it happens very slowly.
0: And it feels like, because I, you know, I have a few friends that are doctors and in various different um, sort of parts of the medical profession. And I've got a few clients that are in the medical profession. And talking to each of them there, and it just seems that every one of them is under a just continuing prolonged ongoing stressful situation COVID's made it much worse but it wasn't yeah. that easy before then and yeah. obviously then you know once we've got COVID under control tidying up all the stuff that's been put to one side is going to take years yeah. so it, it just feels it must feel like trying to walk to the horizon for some people um, but equally um, maybe those of us who are complaining about the medical system could start by looking at what we do and the stuff that you've mentioned there Diet, right? Thinking and being a bit more mindful about what we put in our mouths. Um, movement, so getting up out of the chair and moving a little bit. Um, sleep and circadian rhythms. Um, getting out of that sympathetic nervous system and getting into the parasympathy, you know, the rest and digest versus fight and flight. You know, all of those things are things that each of us could take control of and do something about, and that might then improve our health, which means we can take the pressure off the system and allow things to change. Because if things are under pressure and you're just firefighting, it's really difficult to make change, isn't it?
1: Yeah, uh, absolutely. And I think what's most important to me is like, knowing that these things are essentially the the grounding factors that determine long term human health. They are mm-hmm. all. They're all free, right? Yeah. None of it, right, none of it requires any significant financial investment. The the only other thing that I would say, right, you know, we we can be mindful of these things, we can take control of things, do these things ourselves. That is not equally easy or applicable to everybody,
0: right? No, no, I appreciate are, that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So like there are you know, a lot, a lot of people who maybe have to work several jobs and you know, then still can't afford the, the kind of food that maybe you or I would eat, uh, all yeah. the time to go to the gym or, you know, even have a moment to, to, to work or, you know, do meditation or something like that. Or maybe they, because of, you know, financial circumstances, they live in an area that has a really high amount of water or air pollution, all that kind of stuff. So, so there are, it's not the same for everybody. Mm. However, if we had a system that supported people, um, in these things, it's not, none of it requires, um, much money, it just it does it does require time and support. So so that's the kind of thing that I think we we could do a better job of giving or or providing to people.
0: Yeah, I I agree, I agree entirely about that. You know, and obviously there's a lot spoken about the environment which you live in is is sort of has a big impact on your oh, yeah. mental and physical health. However, take out those people, there's an awful lot of people who don't fit into those categories who do have choices and do have options. Um, that are still not looking after themselves and they're the ones who put pressure on the system, which means that perhaps the help isn't getting through to those people who really need it.
1: Yeah uh, that, that's also true. I guess you know I, I gotta keep batting back like mm-hmm. uh, you know um, a contrarian thought processes. but so there's this idea of healthism, which is that um, you judge somebody by their by their by their health. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think we also have to exist in a, in a society where like some people just don't care about their health. Right. And that has to be, that has to be allowed as, as a, as somebody who is a believer in socialist medicine, as, as I am. And I do, um, I believe that everybody has access to healthcare, regardless of the, the lifestyle or other choices that Mm -hmm. they make. Cause like, if I go, right. So I, um, I got bitten by a snake.
0: Oh, in I'm, I'm glad you're telling you us a snake story because right. I've heard it elsewhere. It's a, yeah. it's, it, you should tell it in full. It's a great story. Okay. So um, so I was visiting a,
1: a good friend of mine, Dr. Ben House. Uh, in his, he has a retreat center in, in the Costa Rican jungle. And we were just out for a walk one evening. And I got bitten by um, a, a third lance, uh, which is a, a basically the most aggressive type of pit viper in Central America. Um, and I ended up spending 11 days in hospital, uh, in Costa Rica, which has a socialized healthcare system. If you're going to get bitten by a snake in Central America, be in Costa Rica because they have (laughs) a much better healthcare system and, uh, they have, um, access to all the antivenoms because they're the ones that develop it. They develop pit viper antivenoms that are used all around the world. Um, and it's, you know, I was in this small regional hospital, nothing fancy, but clean organized Doctors and nurses who know exactly what they're doing. Um, like it's kind of a, the, 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 it's a really good example of doing a lot with not very much. Um, so great. Um, but the, the thing is that I made a choice to put myself at risk in the Costa Rican jungle for fun. Um, and I want healthcare when, when something bad happens to me, right? Just like I want, uh, I, uh, I, when I was 12, I climbed on the top of a roof of a shed. It was like seven feet tall, um, and I jumped off, and I broke four metatarsals in one of my feet. Right, so I have made that decision. It wasn't smart, but I should be allowed. I believe I should be allowed healthcare
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, because of that. Right, so it's the same thing. If somebody chooses not to eat a certain way or you know live a certain way, and I I have to I have to be able to like all of those things have to be able to come together. So that's that's one thing. However. If somebody does want to have a certain um, uh, type of health, or prevent a certain disease, or you know live a certain amount of time, then we should provide the tools and abilities for people to do that. And you're right; it will take pressure off off the healthcare system. But if somebody doesn't want to do that, I can't judge them for it, right? You have to make your own decisions, and that's just we have to we have to allow that to happen.
0: You See, Tommy, that's why people love you because of your eloquence <laughs> and uh, the, balance, the balanced the uh, balanced arguments that you have, and um... Not necessarily agreeing with the podcast host. That's good too. Because <laughs> it? it's supposed to be discussion and debate, right? It's not supposed yeah. to be an echo chamber. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, but you know, back back to all of those things. And you know, that that point you make about they're free. Um, yeah. They're things we can all do. There's, I was talking to somebody the earlier and he was saying I'm I'm thinking about getting one of those Theraguns. I'm like, oh yeah, they, they seem to be very popular. He mm-hmm. said, Do you know which one I should buy? I said, Well, how much. How, how much time are you spending sitting in your chair every day or how much how much actual mobility work are you doing? You know, maybe 10 minutes in the morning. What are you doing when you get home? Are you sitting on your yoga mat or just slouching in the chair? You know, there's an oh. awful lot of things we could do before we start investing in expensive stuff as well, isn't there? You Absolutely. know, we could yeah. we could just and we're going to talk a little bit more about this in a minute. But there's things we could do with our nutrition before we start investing um fancy products or home delivery services that are going to do it for us. We could yeah, we could take yeah, responsibility if that's the route we chose to go down. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. So when did you get in, interested in ancestral health then? Because I'd like to understand how that sort of story evolved. Was it something that you were interested in before you became a medical student or was it something that that sort of developed um, after that?
1: Uh, yeah, it was a little bit before actually I went to, to medical school and I did it there what is – a normal way in the US, but is the long way in the UK, I did an undergraduate degree first, and then I did graduate entry medicine uh, afterwards. And so while I was an undergrad, I learned about something called CrossFit. And this is right at the beginnings of CrossFit, um, like when it was just 12 maniacs in like some like scrubland in Southern California. Um, and they, there was the CrossFit website and they had various people, uh, involved And Rob Wolf, who is the, probably the sort of like the modern leader of like the paleo diet mm-hmm. movement again, nearly 20 years ago. Now he was, he was involved in CrossFit at the time. I think he had one of the first of a uh, CrossFit affiliates. Um, and I sort of learned about. The paleo diet through CrossFit, and then read Rob's, uh, Rob's, Rob's work, and eventually like listened to his podcast and all this kind of stuff. And I don't think that like everybody needs to eat the paleo diet, right? Absolutely not. But it was my sort of first exposure to this idea that hang on a second, there are these you know more modern foods that we haven't really been exposed to until very recently, versus you know these foods that you are probably more similar to what we ate for thousands of years you know and maybe that plays some kind of role in our health and i found that very interesting i I found it as like an idea you know a broad idea rather than focusing individually on very specific foods because people love to make paleo into a straw man or whatever so and we can easily do that um but just that idea that you know maybe there are some things that we were exposed to during evolution that may then you know contribute to our health or be important for our health um and so then I sort of had this bubbling away while I was at, at medical school. Um, and I sort of, I was always a, a little bit into that kind of movement, particularly because I did, I did do CrossFit um, a little bit at medical school, also after medical school. And that kind of al- always was, was that sort of thinking about food that way was always kind of a, a part of that. Um, a couple of other things. Uh, during medical school, my stepbrother at the time who's pretty much exactly the same age as me was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. Um, and his, my former stepfather, his father was a chemical engineer. Uh, and my wife is also now a chemical engineer. And what they're really good at is solving problems, solving complex problems. Like they do it better than any other field. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure. And so basically as a family project, we, we took on this, um, uh, again, this this project to say, well, from a first principles approach, what are all the possible things that could contribute to multiple sclerosis, like the disease starting, and then also controlling symptoms? And all kinds of stuff bubbles up. I think we read more than a thousand papers. So we had uh, infections, uh, expo- you know, different environmental exposures, diet, sleep stress, all this kind of stuff kind of starts to fall out. And then you start to see, well, okay, you know, there's this huge, it doesn't mean that we suddenly understand why people get muscles gross. We don't, right? But we appreciate that actually there are all these different environmental factors that could contribute. And so then that kind of ends up looking a lot like ancestral medicine or integrated medicine or, or functional medicine, like these same core tenets start start to, to start to fall out. And then I, during the first year of my PhD, I was invited to, uh, talk uh, the first ever, I think it was the first ever paleo conference. It was called in London. It's called Health Unplugged. It's run by a guy called Daryl Edwards. The, uh, he does Primal Play. Um, if 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 you've heard of that or him, he's just he's an amazing, incredible guy. Uh, and if you haven't had your podcast, you should. Um, and and so that was again kind of in that arena. And then there was a doctor who'd come over from the US. Uh, she's called Paulina Sayas, and she was part of Physicians for Ancestral Health, and she invited me to speak. I was actually talking about multiple sclerosis. She invited me to speak at their conference, and then that was kind of me in the physician, in like the physicians for ancestral health and ancestral health community. That was kind of how I ended up there.
0: So when people hear of and talk about paleo, I think most people are really referring to the the dietary part of that, aren't they? Yeah, but but it goes beyond that. So would would they be interchangeable, paleo and ancestral health?
1: No, I I don't think so. I the the kind of paleo has really died uh in the in the last few years and i don't think that's necessarily a bad thing you know it had um it, ha- it had a bad image for a number of reasons and again sort of h- hyper focus on diet and then you know saying like oh you know nuts and seeds or peanuts and beans like these aren't ancestral foods you shouldn't eat them like they were they were excluded from a paleo diet old oh, dairy it wasn't something that we we ate until you know regularly until the the agricultural revolution so we probably shouldn't eat dairy all those things i disagree with um so so i think that paleo had a bad rap for a number of reasons um and it's kind it's kind of died so uh, other things have come out in its place and so ancestral health has more of a you know a kind of a, a, a balanced approach to some of those things so maybe maybe paleo was was part of it of ancestral health becoming a thing and certainly a lot of the doctors who are part of this society, they, they got together and met one another at paleo focused, um, uh, conferences and things. So maybe it kind of grew out of that and expanded as we, you know, learn more in the science, you know, uh, grew and, and all that kind of stuff.
0: What sort of, what sort of interest do you think there is in the general populace in, in ancestral health? Is it, is it, is it a big thing or is it a niche? And do you think, um, and, and what are the reasons for that? Is it just just because it's too difficult? It requires effort to uh, to live like that.
1: Yeah. So, so I, I think ancestral health—the phrase itself—is probably pretty niche. Um, mm-hmm. However, I also, you know, like I said, there are all these not, all these groups that focus on these same core things, and that's what's the most important thing. Like. I don't think I need to sell ancestral health because what I really care about is that you move and you eat better and you sleep better, right? And what you call it doesn't really matter, just that you do it. That's that's, 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 that's what I care about. Um, and ancestral health, again, it becomes an easy straw man because people will say, well, don't you know that our most recent ancestors all you know, died uh, either in childbirth or in their 40s? Like, why is anything ancestral going to make us live a longer and healthier life? And again, it's a very easy straw man to set up. And that's, of course, not what anybody is saying. Like, the, a modern physician who is in the Physicians for Ancestral Health Society, I know several of them, right? They, they prescribe antibiotics. They think that you should have um, your birth in a hospital, um, right? They they think that you should have surgery if you need it. Like all the best parts of medicine, of course, should be applied in in every setting. Um, so it's not that we we like anybody is idolizing the the lifestyle and medical approaches of ten thousand or fifty thousand years ago. Um, It's just appreciating that these are factors that are important for our health. And yes, we should incorporate that with the best aspects of of modern medicine. Like It would be stupid not to. So I think people like to say, well, ancestral ancestral health is silly because of all these reasons. But I mean, nobody's saying that, but it's an easy argument uh, to make against it.
0: Everybody likes to have a tribe to belong to, don't they? You know, they like to yeah. say, oh, I'm paleo or I'm keto or I'm vegan. And, you know, it's, it's we've got to belong to this tribe. And then it becomes very polarized, binary or yeah. black and white. And this, like, th- th- they are like the opposing tribe. And we need to, we need to bash them because our way is better, which, which again is nonsense.
1: Yeah. It's, and it's, it's never better. That's the, I mean, that's, but the, the funny different. thing, it's different, but it's, it's funny again, because, like, one of the core tenets of human health is this need to belong, right? And need to have a community and have support. And so this is how we find it. And we often find it, so you can find it at a church, you can find it at a CrossFit gym, you can find it online on Facebook. Um, You you know, this, a community that um, has similar experiences to you, that has similar opinions to you, um, and that, you know, validates you as a human in, the human experience that you have. And that is incredibly important to us. And it's incredibly important for our health. So part of the downside of that is that the way that you identify, if, you, if you're if you very strongly attached to that identity, is then there are the others who aren't like you and have different beliefs. And then, you know, it sort of creates these feelings of tension. But like that, that need to feel part of a tribe is a very human thing. And mm-hmm. it's something that we should support and provide to people in whatever way we can. Because there's a huge amount of evidence to say that if you don't have that, you have an increased risk of all-cause mortality, uh, dementia, all these other things, just because you're not, again, providing this social input that humans need uh, in order to 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 be healthy and happy.
0: I had a uh, lady on recently, Dr. Josephine Perry. I don't know if you're familiar with her. She's a social psychologist no, uh, in, the, in the UK, but she's just written a book called The Ten Pillars of Success. Mm-hmm. And number one was the belonging. Yeah, Absolutely. And, uh, you know, obviously, that's been challenged a lot, hasn't it, in the last 18 months? Because we, yeah. whilst we belong, we haven't been able to belong to those groups. We've been separated from everybody, and that's challenged our mental health. So that maybe yeah. has made that sense of belonging more appo- uh, apparent.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, in- it's incredibly important. And again, it's nice that so when you look at it, it, this is now coming again into more traditional medical approaches. So you have uh, group consultations as part of, you know, life medicine and GPs. You're know, bringing multiple people together with similar conditions in a similar area who may then be able to support one another. Um, you may know the work of Julian Abel with the c- compassionate communities, like people looking after each other in um, in the community. So he he ra- ran a, a project in, in Froome uh, that that focused on this, and they had a, a huge impact on the health of the community. Um, so individuals being part of a group and looking after one another is incredibly important. Um, you know, so I, I would absolutely put it up there. First pillar is incredibly important.
0: Mm. How does it apply then simply how, how would it apply to daily living? Cause obviously I want to get into this a bit more f- for those listeners who are interested in how they can start to integrate some of these principles into their lives and, and make yeah. some, make some simple changes. So firstly, just a general overview on how, how it would apply to our daily living because you know people think paleo well why aren't you living in a cave then <laughs>
1: <laughs> i think sometimes my wife complains that i that i live in a cave because i like to have the windows open when i sleep and it gets really cold and i, I do like i do like that i sleep much better when that's Me, the me t- me too yeah um and and also uh, we have a we have a gym at home but it's essentially it's it's in this big metal shed and so yeah. it's essentially open to the environment so when it's freezing outside it's literally freezing in the gym uh, as well. Although we, we maybe we'll, will insulate it or, or rebuild it or something at some point. <laughs> um, okay. So, I, so maybe the, the, the easiest way is probably, I'll just tell you what, what I do. And I, I feel like I, I sort of, I, I have a lot of these things that I try and incorporate as part of my routine and I am privileged and lucky to be able to do so. We'll just say that too. Um, so i go to bed at the same time every night and I wake up at the same time every morning. Just-
0: Just while you're going along, Tommy, I might just put my hand up and interrupt you here on occasions to to add bits because when I talk about and listen to about sleep, that seems to be the number one thing about getting better sleep is the consistency of um, turning light out and waking up in the morning.
1: Yeah, 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 exactly. So um, often people wonder about how to uh, sort of instigate this. And I appreciate that it's difficult with your circumstances or, you know, I used to work Night shifts, mm. I you know, switch from night shifts to day shifts. There there are these aspects of modern life that make some of these things very difficult. That again, the important thing then is if you can't do one of these several things that we talk about, then the others potentially become more important and maybe you can focus on those more rather than being like really worried that you can't get to bed at the same time every night because you have to work night shifts. Like that's a part of modern life and we just have to you know accept that. I wouldn't worry about it. Just then maybe diet and movement and other things become, you know, go a little bit higher up the list of priorities. Okay. Um, all right. So I go to bed at the same time every night, I wake up at the same time every morning. How I work this out is that I know when I'm going to wake up 6am, the dog wants to go out. Right. So that's when I'm going to wake up regardless of when I went to bed. So, and it would be the same if you had kids or you had to get kids to school or, or you have a, you know, you got to go to your job at a certain time, and so then I know that I pretty much need. If, if I get nine hours in bed, then I'm probably going to sleep for eight of them. So that means I need to be in bed at nine, All right. And so that's when my bedtime is. So um,
0: that that to me, what you're talking about there, that's sleep opportunity, isn't it? I mean, you, you yes. once you, once you once your head hits the pillow and you close your eyes, you can't really do much during that period to affect how much deep sleep you get, how much REM sleep. There's lots of stuff you can do as pre-sleep routines and post-sleep routines, which I'm sure you're coming on. But providing better and longer sleep opportunity, if it's possible, is is a good start.
1: Yeah, uh, absolutely. And I think it's, it's probably more important than all the other hacks and other things that you do. And I I, I have a story about, so I, I work with um, Formula One drivers as like a lifestyle performance consultant. And at one point I got, you know, a driver was interested in improving their sleep. And I got some sleep tracker data. And it was like, you know, look at, you know, we're like, well, I want more deep sleep. That was the, that was the, that was the key because deep sleep was going to think that sort of everybody's like, want to get more deep sleep. Mm-hmm. And you look at this data and I'm like, well, you spend five hours in bed. So <laughs> like none of the rest matters because you're just not, not spending enough time in bed. Um, so that I think spending enough time in bed, giving yourself the opportunity to sleep is probably more important than everything else. Um, in my, in my opinion, rather than worrying about the, the sleep mm-hmm. stages and all that kind of stuff.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, okay. So then for me personally, I sleep better if I don't eat right before bed. Um, and a lot of people, uh, subjectively say that, and there is a little bit of evidence to support that too. though not a huge amount, but it, it depends on your total calorie load and requirements and all that kind of stuff. Um, like some people may do better if they have a small meal right before bed because they're not they're not really hungry while they're trying to sleep so but the main so i have my main meal three hours before before bed so i so we eat at six um and so then other aspects of this that, that come into the, to the day is that, you know, I have a, a fixed time every day when I work out. It's usually in the middle of the day, you know, the equivalent of somebody training in their lunch break. I can do it a little bit later in the afternoon because I do most of my work from home. Um, but again, just having a, a a time where every day you do your movement practice, whatever it is. And it could be the morning. It could be lunchtime. It could be afternoon. It could be, you know, sort of close prox- close proximity to, to dinner time. All of that's fine. Yes, your hand is up.
0: I like the way you use the phrase "movement practice." There, Kelly Starrett used that phrase as well. I don't know if that's a coincidence because because he's <laughs> big also in the CrossFit world. Um,
1: I don't know. Um, well, I do obviously know. Uh, I'm I'm very familiar with with Kelly's work. Um, but I think it's important to say movement practice because, again, I don't really ca- care. I care that you do it, but I don't care what it is. Mm if it's yoga or you like to lift weights or you want to go for a walk, people don't walk in it. Like everybody should walk more. Um, Like whatever it is, I, I I care that you do it rather than exactly what it is. Although I think everybody should lift weights. Um We'll come
0: back to and, that later then. Cause yeah, I'm, we'll I'm come, in agreement we'll, with that. We'll come,
1: we'll come back to that later. Um, Okay. So you have some time during the day when you do maybe a more focused movement practice, but during the day you can do things like you could spend more time uh standing. You could spend more time getting movement snacks, which is basically like, Every hour or two, you get up and just walk around or do some push-ups or do some squats for, again, it's, again, just like a minute or two, and there's a huge amount of benefit that comes down from that. And actually, frequent small chunks of movement are probably better for your health than one block of movement for the same total time, right? So if you did five minutes an hour for 12 hours, you probably get more total benefit from that than doing an hour block and then being sat down and sed- sedentary the rest of the time.
0: Absolutely. Um- got quite interested in this phenomenon of the active couch potato. So mm. um, traditionally people will maybe work out for an hour before they go into the office. But yeah. then because of that, they feel morally superior to their sedentary colleagues and <laughs> they then also feel like they're entitled to sit down all day because they've already done the workout. But as you just said, you know, sitting in front of your computer for eight hours a day pretty much wipes out all the benefit you've had from the exercise.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, and, it doesn't wipe out all the benefit, but it does seem to wipe out some of it, certainly. Um, and so, so that's why I think just like frequent small bouts of movement mm-hmm. are really beneficial. And it's the one of the problems that we have as a modern society is that we have sort of uh, idolized some degree of exercise that it, like it has to be hard, right? Oh, and you have yeah. to get sweaty and out of breath and want to throw up. That is not what movement for humans is like. Um, like the marathon is not the pinnacle of human perf- human performance for, for human health. Right? It's great if you want to run a marathon. I have run several and some ultras myself. Um, like great if you want to do it, uh, you should do it. But don't think that that's like the pinnacle of of, of human uh, health and performance. And actually, it's probably detrimental in a number of ways, considering. The, the stress that it puts on the body. So exercise should not, or movement should not be this thing that has to be really hard um, and miserable. You know, it can just be going for a five minute walk outside. Uh, and if you do that a lot, you know, the, 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 that's probably much more beneficial from your health than doing like a couch to 5k or, or trying to train for, train for a marathon. So movement should be enjoyable. Uh, the vast majority of your movement should just be easy and enjoyable.
0: Again, walking free and available yeah. to most people. Yeah. And if you, if you can
1: spend an, uh, an hour a day or 30, wait, 30 minutes, 20 to 30 minutes up to an hour a day, like walking, brisk walking for the majority of people, that's probably like all the aer- quote unquote aerobic or endurance exercise that you need to do. I would like you to lift weights as well, or do some kind of resistance training. It doesn't need to be weights, but like, that's it. Like that is, that's at that point, you're probably reaching near. Or, you know, the majority of the benefit that you could get from from some kind of endurance or aerobic movement.
0: Mm. Well, we'll come back to that at you know at the end when we talk about specifically to lifestyle maybe adjustments for triathletes. But um carry on with your day. I'm interested now. This is a, this is a <laughs> yes. this is a great this is a great lifestyle.
1: Uh yeah. And again, like I'm lucky and privileged to be to be yeah. able to do it. And I, I want to say that again. So all right, so we've talked about my movement. Um during the day, I'm not always great at this, maybe three to four times a week. I will either do some like five or 10 minutes of some simple, uh, usually it's transcendental meditation. So some kind of mantra based meditation or some, some breath work. Um, and, you know, there are multiple apps again, all completely free. Um, and it you, maybe it may depend. So usually if, if like I have a day where I have a huge amount of work and I'm really stressed, that's the time that I'll maybe just take five or 10 minutes just to kind of like check out for, for, for a, for a minute. Um, and then, so I'm really talked about my food. Um, I eat a low ish carb, but not low carb whole food type diet. So, um, let me see what, what did I, what well, I'll tell you what I ate yesterday. Um, I had a, a, a chunk of leftover steak, uh, and a little bit of rice that I kind of heated up. That's what I have for breakfast. Then for lunch, I had so the other day, I uh, I try and do this because I really hate food waste, and this maybe then comes to some of your other questions. But so I I made a curry that basically had all these kind of like sad looking odds and ends and vegetables and stuff. You know, they kind of like sit in the Mm -hmm. bottom of the fridge. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I took all of those and I put them in a pot with with uh, some ground some ground beef, and I made like a curry. Um, and there was some like, yeah, sad looking leaves and some like wilty, wilty carrots and you know, all that kind of, everybody has that in their fridge. Right. Mm. So I, I made a curry, uh, with that a couple of days ago. So that's what I have for lunch. And then, um, for dinner, we had some salmon and some uh, a couple of small, uh, baked potatoes. And then I made a, a coleslaw, which had a, a couple of cups, types of cabbage, some carrots, some green onions. And then I made like a, a yogurt based dressing for that. So that's what I ate yesterday. Uh, maybe I had a protein bar at one point just before I went to the gym. Um, and so basically all my meals look like that. Breakfast is some kind of leftovers. Lunch is some kind of leftovers. And then I'll, I'll cook dinner. Um, and then you know maybe I'll have a protein bar or two during the day. Or, may, or maybe a protein shake. Something like that. Uh, I'll, I'll usually try and increase my protein somehow with, with a, in a snack.
0: I'm glad you mentioned protein. That seems to be the one area where a lot of people are not meeting the... Um, rda's so, uh, again back to you know if if we could probably say that without repeating it, is this is this is for people who have that sort of you could call it privileged if you like they're privileged to be able to make those choices and things but yeah. certainly the people i coach and work with and associate with are probably not eating enough protein are definitely not getting that much protein in, in the morning um if they are it's probably some milk on on some cereal which uh, yeah. again we might want to uh Jettison to the um, to another to another table. Um, so good, good, good servings of protein evenly throughout the day there, um, yeah. rather than in one hit in the evening meal. Yeah. Um, some carbohydrates, but still whole food carbohydrates rather than processed. Yeah. Um, no mention of chocolate there. I know Brad Kearns is a big fan of dark chocolate. Are you? Are you a dark chocolate man?
1: Um. <laughs> do you know what my favorite chocolate which i don't get very frequently anymore but which i will have if it's available is cadbury's fruit and nut i love it right. um <laughs> but uh, those kinds of things i eat very small amounts because i just can't eat a lot of sweet stuff like i i just don't i don't enjoy it uh, or I, I do enjoy it but in small in small in small amounts um brad did visit me um a couple, of, maybe it was a couple of years ago now, and, and we we recorded a podcast that he gave me some of his dark chocolate. It was very good, so I so I enjoy so I do I do enjoy that too. Uh, but I don't eat a lot of sweets because I don't enjoy them as much as I enjoy savoury, uh, personally. But protein, yes, I, I basically every meal that I have is protein focused because that's the macronutrient that's the hardest to get in and is incredibly important right i do a lot of um strength training um it's important you know, there's there's increasing amount of evidence to say that endurance athletes need more protein again you, you have a lot of muscle turnover you know, you're trying to prevent injuries trying to trying to adapt to training and then as you get older you get something that we call anabolic resistance which basically means that your muscles need more protein in order to like just sort of stay the same even if you want to or and then more so if you want to build them up so as you get older your protein requirements increase as well so if you're an athlete or you're older or you're a human i think you should eat a lot of protein and again like everybody then just imagines that i just sit there and i eat nothing but steak the whole day and it's it's not that right so if you have like 30 to 40 grams of protein three to four times a day that's great and easily achievable for anybody it could be you can get it from Greek yogurt or you can get it from tofu, you can get it from steak or eggs, whatever. There's loads loads of options depending on your, your dietary pattern. But if you focus on protein first, other stuff will come with it and you've probably got yourself a much more round well-rounded meal.
0: Where do you sit on supplements, whey protein and things like that?
1: Um, so I, I will so if there's a if there's a day when I haven't really had a chance to, you know, I don't have enough leftovers or I haven't had time to cook. Um then I will probably incorporate a protein shake uh, at some point uh, yeah whey protein,
0: yeah mm, okay. so um dairy you you mentioned before that there's this sort of um there's this sort of part of the paleo movement that was saying, oh, you shouldn't have dairy, you shouldn't have beans um and you were saying, you know, you didn't believe that to be true. where does where does dairy fit into your life there because you didn't mention it much in that particular sort of daily year. Uh...
1: Oh yeah, so so some days we'll have a lot of dairy in. Uh, absolutely. Um, there, uh, so there's a, there's a type of Icelandic yogurt called skid that I, eat, and I have Icelandic family and I, I, that's something that I really enjoy and we can get it in the, in the shops here. So often I'll, I'll have that as part of a meal. Um, like I, I, in fact, I used it to make the dressing for the coleslaw uh, last night. Um, and sometimes there are, so, so now the, the, the wonders of, of of modern food processing, uh, you there are there's a, there's a there are cereals so they taste uh just as crunch as regular cereal like you make from grain but they're essentially just made from casein protein from dairy but they, they taste the same so you get the same kind of crunch and all that kind of stuff but it's essentially just protein it's great wow. i don't eat them that frequently because they're expensive um but you know so dairy protein that comes in in, in various guises is, is you know I, I had a bit of a butter on a bit of butter on my potato last night so yeah i Dairy here, uh dairy, you know, more sometimes a lot, sometimes not very much. It just kind of depends on what I'm eating.
0: Okay. And you made a you made uh, an emphasis there when you talk about carbohydrates of lowish, but not low. Mm. Um, any particular reason why you emphasize that?
1: Um, so like uh, again, I think often when people when you say low carb, people assume keto, eating nothing but steak, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, but again. Like I train pretty hard in the gym. I have certain athletic goals that I'm trying to achieve. Carbohydrates help me achieve them. Um, But if you looked at my diet compared to the average individual, I probably less carbs. So I eat um, a low carb but not very low carb diet. So I eat low carb compared to the general population. I guess that's why. Because because yeah. people will ask about that. They'll always ask about how many carbs I eat. So that's why I, tr- that's why I made that point.
0: Yeah, there's a huge debate within the endurance world as well. And, you know, there's the, um, oh, I can't remember the name of the researcher in Australia now that's done a lot of stuff on carbohydrate metabolism. Louise Burke. And Louise Burke, that's right. And uh, is it John Hawley as well, her husband? Um, yeah. Okay. And then a lot of people say, "Oh, yeah, well, it's done on race walkers, and that's not the same as triathletes, you know." And there's all these ultra runners that are, that are keto, and you can get away with it. And I'm like, to me, anyway, from my limited knowledge compared to yours, is that keto and endurance sports generally aren't a good partners. So,
1: if if you're an if you're an elite level endurance athlete, a hundred percent right, carbs are ergogenic, as we call them. They are performance supporting or performance enhancing um, when you used uh, when used correctly the the kind of the bulk of the of uh, the low carb keto literature in athletes suggests right if you're just like you're an average person and you just you want to get on your bike and go for a run or you want to go and just like lift some weights if you were keto it's probably not going to affect that if you're just like average joe performance keto is probably not going to affect that negatively um, and some people may see health benefits and other things that go with it and, and would benefit from it so like for the, for the average person, I don't think it will make that much difference, but if you are an elite performer, right. Carbohydrates are required.
0: But if you're in so. the middle, I mean, I mean, most, most maybe listeners will probably say, well, I'm doing Ironman and I'm an average performer, but actually as, as, as part of the general population, you, you that's quite an elite world, isn't <laughs> it? To be able to do an Ironman in, in a day, yeah. um, and yeah, I, I appreciate that if you are operating at quite a low intensity, you might be able to do it all from fat metabolism if your fat metabolism is efficient, but I still it just feels like, and I know there are people who do it as well and they're quite loud and speaking about it, but I, mm. just from my experience is that for a majority of people, it's um, they're, not, they're not good bedfellows. I think low, the low, the lower carb approach uh, or a more mindful approach to eating carbohydrates, and then cycling your carbohydrates when you're doing particularly intense blocks of training is, seems to be the best way for the majority of people yeah. to go. Unless, and, and also, keto is very restrictive in terms of what you can eat and your choices. So you've got to be properly on it. And the people that I know that have been on it for a long time have generally got health complications that would be worse if they didn't follow it.
1: Yeah, the, No, so I, I completely agree. If you're, I mean, even if you're just like showing up to an Ironman race and you want to have it, you want to do it in less than, less than a day or two thirds of a day. Uh, yes, I I think, you know, enough carbohydrates cycling them using around training. uh, That's very important for your performance. I I completely agree The one thing that I saw frequently working with endurance athletes who were keto is they just cannot eat enough food. Like they're just not hungry. And so then, uh, caloric intake tanks, they lose weight, their hormones are a mess, they don't feel good. Um, and so that's one of the that's one of the potential issues with being in like doing a, a high volume of training and being keto is that you just you're not hungry enough to meet your caloric needs. Um, and so if, if you are, if you do manage to meet your caloric needs um and you eat keto, there are a good chunk of people who will perform great. Uh, but it's not everybody. Again, it's just like appreciate the, you, you know, your own nuanced personalized approach.
0: And not being hungry is that as a result of the protein um, consumption and the satiety principle there then
1: yeah so i think there's a there's a a number of potential things that that go into it so uh increasing protein that seems to improve society um it could it's also largely potentially driven by um the the reduction in, in the range of food choices right this is the reason why most diets that restrict a certain type of food. Um, and it could be plant-based to paleo to keto. The reason why you, people lose weight generally is because you just, you run out of food options. You have far fewer food options. Um, and then eventually you figure out that you can make cookies and, and things like that, that are still keto or plant-based or whatever. And then you gain your weight again. Um, and so I think part of it is to do, um, yeah, part of it's to do with protein. Part of it's to do with food choices um there may be in keto there there may be some effective ketones on satiety that's a possibility um so there's there's a there's a number of different parts that play into it but uh, again if you're you know these are people who are training 20 plus hours a week i'm, I'm talking about right additionally there's only so much time you're having a day to eat and that's part that's part of it too
0: mm, yeah and if you uh, and if you're eating lots of fiber and lots of vegetables and all that to make up for all that other food to make up for the not not having them maybe they're more dense carbohydrates you're going to be full so you're not you you know you need to digest that food before you can get into some reasonably intense training don't you
1: yeah yeah so calorie density plays a big role too and if you're dramatically improved food quality so you have a lot more non starchy vegetables and all that kind of stuff you've decreased the calorie density of your food at the same time as um you know restricting you know a a macro group and 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 you're right at at some point you just can't physically eat enough
0: Now, I've heard you, I think it might have been on a, a podcast with Brad, um, where there's a, there's a lot of endurance athletes, particularly when they're coming up to race season, they talk about trying to lose weight, and they want you to cut calories at the same time as doing large volumes of training. You have a different approach, don't you? Your approach is to eat as much as you possibly can, so work out what that total amount of calories you can eat is before you start gaining weight, and yeah, um, do it that way. Because obviously, when you eat more, that ups your metabolism as well, doesn't it? So the furnace is burning hotter.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean the your, your, the furnace kind of burns to match the, the calories you eat, the calories that you eat. But I guess um, there's this, you know, and and it, it, it's this slightly mythical uh, but fairly well supported um, amount of calories, maybe like a ten percent buffer, which says that if if you're not e- if you're not eating that, you need to eat below that buffer before you start losing weight. But If you get into that buffer you can keep eating within it to the top of it and you won't gain more weight because you're then going to use those calories for um processes in the body that you would otherwise just sort of like put on the back burner because you don't have the calories to support them and it's it's probably going to be stuff to do with recovery turning over the gut lining that kind of stuff and so there is this, you know, when you, when you watch people particularly figure out their calories around a heavy, um, volume of of training, there's this sort of, again, there's like this buffer zone, which is probably maybe on average two to 300 calories per day, where if you eat within that, you won't gain weight. Um, but you're probably supporting all these other processes with those calories as well as not restricting yourself as much. So my approach absolutely is eat as much as you can without gaining weight, rather than thinking about the other side of the buffer, which is how much do you need to not eat to start losing weight? Um, and then that gives you the, the 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 starting point.
0: Well, I think there'd be a lot of triathletes feeling like you've given them a free hole pass now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Don't come and blame me uh, when you gain a few, you know, when it's harder to get up the hills because you gained a few extra. I, it's it's the, the the problem is um Uh, The the problem is that like, nobody has any, well, a very small number of people know how actually how many calories they're eating. um, And it's really difficult and really boring uh, to track calories. So I find, you know, other ways to do this, um, in terms of uh, uh, manipulating uh, types of foods or food quality, um, you know, focusing on as as much as you can eat, rather than just like getting hyper focused in, in the calories and macros. For most people, that's more sustainable. Like some people are really good at counting and they really enjoy it, and that's great too. Uh, but that is th- those people are not me. Um, so and not a lot of people that I've worked with. So so you know, again, it just depends on on what approach works well for you.
0: No, me me neither. And it it seems to me, and again, you can correct me um, if you like, uh, that if you focus on eating whole food and you prepare it yourself, it's and you train training regularly. It's actually pretty difficult to gain significant amounts of yeah. weight.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think when again, there's this sort of comes down to, potentially down to sort of an ancestral health or evolutionary principle. But there's a there's a suggestion that depending on the calorie density of the food, and it's about 1.5 calories per gram, right? So if you think that pure protein or carbohydrates is four calories per gram on average, fat is nine calories per gram. If the total calorie density of your meal is above one and a half calories per gram, so right, in order to get down there, you're going to need, it's going to need to have significant fiber or water content, which then means it's going to be an unprocessed or relatively unprocessed food. If you're above that threshold, it's much harder for the body to regulate satiety. So you're more likely to overeat. And if you think about foods that have a calorie density of above one and a half uh, calories per gram, that's basically all processed foods um, and, you know, butter and heavy cream and stuff like that, uh, or uh, whipping cream, um, as we call it in the UK. Um, and, you know, it's, but, but there's very few scenarios where you're going to, where that makes up the majority of, of of a given meal. So it can certainly be part of a meal. You think about the overall calorie density. Again, I don't think you should go away and calculate the calorie density of your meal, but just, be, you know, if, if the majority of your meal is water or fiber, so then it's, you know, unprocessed uh, proteins or, or vegetables or whatever. Um, then you're in a, in a scenario where your body is much better at regulating appetite. And then you add on top of that, all these other things we talked about and your training. Um, then I think you're right. It's, it's very difficult to, to, to overeat to a point where you'll gain weight. The one caveat again, is that at some point, if you're training 20 hours a week and all you eat is, you know, salads and steaks and eggs and fish, like sometimes you're just going to need to eat a whole bar of dairy milk uh, because you just haven't gotten enough calories in. Mm. Um, and that is that is something worth thinking about too. For, for some people, again, sometimes you need, like, considering the unancestral training volumes that people do, like historically and currently, you know, hunter-gatherers, like they don't do the volume of training that some endurance athletes do, um, sometimes you are going to need to eat calorie-dense processed foods in order to meet your your calorie needs. Again, that's just part of understanding what your body needs as an athlete.
0: I was quite interested to read Herman Ponce's book "Burn." I don't know if you've read it.
1: Um, I haven't read it, but I am familiar with his work.
0: Yeah, but he talks about the um, the Hadza tribe, the hunter gatherers, and you know, I think he said seventy percent of their daily carbo- uh, calorie intake, at least, is, is carbohydrate because it's either tubers or honey. Yeah. In the purest form. Yeah.
1: No, and and so in the setting of... And so so this this is one of the reasons why I think we can say that carbohydrates in thems, of themselves aren't detrimental to health. It's the context in which they come and all the other things that are happening at the same time, right? So if mm-hmm. you're the Hadza and you spend the majority of your day walking for hunting uh, and you have your sleep and community and... Um, you know, all these other important aspects, circadian biology, uh, all these other things that support health at the same time, then absolutely right. They can eat the majority of their food coming from, from, from carbohydrates. And a lot of it is just pure honey. Like when that, when that's available, absolutely.
0: Context before content. Hey, yeah. Um, if you're a triathlete and you're doing high volumes of training and, uh, you know, Compared to most sports, I'd say anything above eight or nine hours a week is a high volume of training, not, not yes. necessarily 20, um, but but, it, we, but we've normalized it. And mm. then you're out on your long ride and you're stopping and you're having cake, but that becomes a regular thing. And we're eating refined sugars, which are then going to have a, a sort of an impact on our insulin and our pancreatic health. Is, is there any danger that, as some people suggest, that, and with all the sports drinks and, and sports nutrition as well that uh, people are, are prone to consume, is there any danger that endurance athletes are, are sort of unknowingly pushing themselves to, um, t- towards a metabolic health issue, m- m- namely type 2 diabetes, or um, is there going to have to be some other health considerations in order for that to happen?
1: Yeah, it, it's a great question. And when there have been some studies that have looked at um trainees in that kind of you know 8 to 10 12 hours a week of training mainly um endurance type training and looked at things like their uh, blood sugar levels over the day um and the probably the most important thing is it's incredibly invari- incredibly variable like everybody's blood sugar is incredibly different from from person to person based on, on a huge number of factors um but there are people who who train that much and still and you know eat within like the the um, recommended number of carbohydrates, which could be like seven or 800 grams, depending on their, their training load, And they have, and their blood sugar looks terrible. It's all over the map. It's really high. Um, you know, and and just like, and all the time. Um, so I think it probably it's, it's probably very individual. That's where, where I'd start. And just by saying that we've gotten to a point where we now understand that blood sugar is so different from person to person that I couldn't tell you, uh, a one simple answer um it's way more cut. like the glycemic index doesn't it's not really a thing because it's so different from person to person how they respond to a given food in terms of their blood sugar glycemic index glycemic load those things should just be retired like they just they don't count anymore based on what we know um so the, the you know having a, a slice of cake in the middle of a long ride i probably don't have any issue with that my guess you know, because, you know, when, when you exercise insulin levels are brought down that glue, you know, the glucose is immediately shuttled into the muscles. My guess is that in reality is the, you know, it's the total, right. So, so it's the person who will have a cake, you know, a slice of cake on, on a ride, but then they had a ride. So they'll have a slice of cake afterwards and a big bowl of pasta with a load of cheese on top. And all of a sudden it's, you know, it's a, it's 1500 calories in one meal. (laughs) Um, and it's that kind of stuff. So, those individual exposures to what is a, a process, you know, processed carbohydrates or refined foods, I, I'm not really concerned about, particularly around training, because it's just going to get used up. But I think the overall dietary pattern is is where it becomes is where it becomes an issue, and that and that's you know, the one thing leads into another, and all of a sudden you 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 have a have a scenario where you're eating a lot of refined carbohydrates, plus refined other foods, plus eating too many calories. So I'm not concerned about the individual exposures. It, it's all about the the total pattern.
0: I'm looking at the time here, Tommy, and I'm not, and there's a, a bit more to cover. And I so I'm not sure if you can give me a quick answer to this, but there's a growing popularity around, um, uh, people who have no apparent blood sugar issues, wearing constant glucose monitors, um, to, yeah. uh, worth it or not in it? In, no. no. Okay. So, um, and, and um, that's great.
1: <laughs> there's and and I'll tell you the, the real issue that I have. So I don't have a short answer to this question. Um, Sadly, I'm, it's very rare that I have a short answer to a question because it always depends. But I, there are there's a huge group of people, um, athletes, biohackers who now have continuous glucose monitors, and what happens is you create a glucose centric eating disorder. Essentially, that, that that that's what I think I, I see it on Instagram, and and I can and I can tell you a number of reasons why. You know, And so glucose is important. Absolutely. Glucose variability, I think, is very important in people who are at high risk or who want to understand how their body responds to foods. You can try it, but the, and, and maybe you should try it if you have access to it. But consider the fact that we eat the same food again and again and again and again. I would argue that you need two weeks of data, maybe a month maximum. And then by that point, you've probably eaten all the foods that you're going to regularly eat. And you have enough information about how those foods affect your body. And maybe your bowl of cornflakes causes this big spike in blood sugar, and you say, Well, you know, I'll have something else instead. I think that's useful information and you can use it to make better food choices. What happens instead is that people, I'm wearing my blood sugar monitor, I want to eat this thing, I know it's gonna be bad for my blood sugar, and I get really stressed about it. And you and like and and people again sort of like fetishize foods. But then they have this continuous concern about how it's going to affect their blood sugar because the, the monitor is going to tell you. And there's this great study that uh, Ellen Langer did. She's a psychologist um, at Harvard where she she um, was measuring the blood sugar. These were of, of type 2 diabetics, but they, you know, diabetics are acutely aware of their blood sugar because they need to give, mm-hmm. uh, usually you know, if, if it's severe enough, give insulin to manage it. And so they had diabetics and then they gave them uh, they sort of did a crossover study, so they had two two conditions, and they did one and then the other. And it was like, here's a milkshake. This is how many carbohydrates are in this, and are in this milkshake, right? And they drink the milkshake, and then they see how much the blood sugar goes up. Uh, and then they have a low carb version and a high carb version. Here's the milkshake. Look at all these carbohydrates you're about to drink. In the low carb version versus, versus the high carb version, blood sugar spiked was, was much more. The blood sugar spike was much smaller, right? But it was the same drink. So telling you that something has more carbs in it causes a bigger blood sugar spike because you expect a big blood sugar spike and you are stressed about the fact that you're going to get a big blood sugar spike because you know the blood sugar is important as a diabetic. So it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Look at all these carbs in this meal I'm about to eat. Oh my God, it's going to make my blood sugar shoot up. And it does. Um, so this is why I think the majority of healthy people, so some data is important, but wearing these things continuously forever is a waste of time and money. And I think it can have a negative effect on your mental health and, and your um your, your relationship with food.
0: Yeah, and to your point there, there are other mechanisms that cause spikes in blood sugar, not necessarily yeah. the food you've eaten. So you, exactly. you, you're you riding your bike and somebody pulls out in front of you and you nearly crash into it. You're going to get a big blood sugar spike then. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Right. Back to, back to your day, to your routine. Is there anything else to tell us about your daily routine?
1: No, I I think that's it. Um, uh, yeah. So, so we haven't talked too much about, uh, community, uh, I guess. Um, so different parts of, I have a friend who often comes and, uh, uh, trains the gym with me. I always make sure that like the one, one meal a day dinner, I sit down and me and my wife, we have dinner together. Um, i think that's important like right? sort of community and and social gatherings around food so like those things get get built in uh, as well i think i've i think i've ticked all the all, i think i've ticked off all the pillars or all the boxes of all the things that i try to incorporate
0: uh, the whole thing about uh, what we talked about before about belonging and, and training is that um in a lot of endurance sports and i know in triathlon's a sport that i've sort of um lived in for the last 30 years is is it um there's a big trend to training on your own uh, mm. because so oh, that group don't do what I want to do. Oh no! know, well, that's a group of cyclists and I want to do this type of training. And so whilst we might be getting the physical benefits of riding on our own, so it can be exactly as we've set out, uh, yeah. we're not, we're not getting that social interaction with people, which we're sort of forgetting about our mental health then. And also then the impact that has on our hormonal system and all those other things. So, you know, we probably, at least to my mind and my experience is that being in the community, uh, riding with people might not be perfect, but actually the total benefit is greater.
1: Yeah, uh, absolutely. And you know, I get, it it depends on on your end goals. Um, but yeah, obviously group group rides, group runs, uh, they're fa- they're fantastic things, and you can often have social uh, components around them. Uh, but if you know for whatever reason you you have to train alone and for long periods of time, I do train alone because I'm in a shed in in in, in my garden. Um, then you know you can get these things from from other places right it doesn't have to come through training you, you know you join a choir or you know you volunteer or you know there are, you go to church right there are, there are all these ways that you can get access to community so like none is necessarily any better than any other it's just making sure that you do get some of that
0: right Strength training. Everybody should yes. strength train. We, can, we can't avoid this, can we? And, I, and I've been an avid uh, lifter of weight since I was 15. So uh, that's that's sort of 80% of my life and more. So I'm with you on this one.
1: Yeah. Um, do, you, do your stuff. Yeah, that's, I mean, so, so the, the more time that I spend looking at long-term health in, in uh, uh, the population level, the more convinced I am that basically the more muscle that you can gain and keep, that's basically, that's like the whole game right? Because all those other lifestyle factors fit into it. Um, but if you look at any long-term like population, it says longevity disease risk. If you're in the top 50% or ideally top third of muscle mass or strength, you live a longer time, you have fewer diseases. Um, you are less likely to fall and break a hip, um, which then, you know, comes with a a whole number of, of, of downstream risks. Anybody can do it. There are studies where they take like 85-year-old ladies with advanced osteoporosis Mm. and they put them in a leg press. Great. Like, literally, uh, strength training is probably the lowest risk uh, training type in terms of injury. Running, particularly if you're an amateur, is somewhere 10 to 30 times greater in terms of injury risk than lifting weights. Um, So it's low risk, incredibly important for your your long-term health. If you are an endurance athlete, which I know many of the listeners are, uh, plenty of studies to suggest that if you do more strength training, you will reduce your injury risk, sport specific injury risk. Um, like muscle is basically the most important anti-aging thing you have in your body. Um, so like it's a glucose sink. Um, if you move it, it's anti-inflammatory. Um, like uh, literally what else is there? Like literally the muscle, your muscle is incredibly important, but so this is, this is then where the rubber hits the road. It doesn't need to be a huge amount, and it doesn't need to be that hard. Like the probably the minimum effective dose for the average person is somewhere between one and four sets per muscle group per week. Right, that you take close to failure. Basically, you, you get where well, you get to the point where you can't do another good rep. Doesn't mean you have to like completely fail and like the bar crushes you or anything like that. Um, so we're talking like push ups, squats. If you get some bands for a door, you can do some kind of row or pull down. Like maybe some kind of shoulder press that's it uh you can probably do it in 20 to 30 minutes once or twice a week like it, it's that like that's how much you need for like a longevity um, and health benefit it's very very little and requires essentially no equipment um so yeah you should lift, do resistance training I'll call it resistance training it doesn't have to be weights um i enjoy lifting weights but you might not so anything that has that kind of resistance the number of reps doesn't matter. That's something else that we've learned more recently. If you do 20 reps, but you get close to, you know, quote unquote failure, that's as good as if it was like eight reps with a heavier weight. You get this, a very similar stimulus. So the reps doesn't matter as long as you get to that kind of failure point. And I, again, I say failure is in you can't do another good rep with good form.
0: There's, a, uh, there's an MMA coach who's been on the Joe Rogan show, Firas Sahibi, I think it is, uh-huh. talking about... That you shouldn't do anything that makes you really sore because that impacts on your ability to train probably the next day. And one of the biggest drawbacks, what well, one of the biggest objections for endurance athletes, particularly in lifting weights, is well, I'm going to get DOMS and then I won't be able to run the next day. But uh, you know, you you get run, you get DOMS if you run downhill hard and you're not used yeah. to it. So it doesn't you don't you don't have to go and do, do go and do squats and lunges or leg press at the gym. Um,
1: I think again, this comes from this mindset that. The modern endurance athlete has, which is that training ha- like it has to be hard and it has to be miserable in order for it to work. <laughs> if you, right, if, if you, if you don't get DOMS, that doesn't mean that you didn't get a good training stimulus, right? Like yeah. there, there are there are plenty of studies in the resistance training literature that says DOMS are a very poor predictor of how much muscle or strength you gain, right? So I would argue that that. The, that sort of complaint about strength training probably just means that you went in there and you did too much or you do it too infrequently and then you can get doms it doesn't need to be that doesn't need to be that much or that hard or result in that much pain for you to benefit from it uh, so, that's the that's the important thing
0: yeah cuz if i do one press up today right and that's all i can do but then next time i do it i do two press ups and if i keep going with that and just adding one more press up on each time and I'm consistent, in in a couple of months' time, I'll be able to do 20 presses. So that means I'm stronger than I was when I started. So I've increased my strength. If I do 20 air squats today, and in a year or in six months' time, I can do 100, I'm stronger. But equally, if I stand on one leg for 10 seconds and I'm wobbling, then there's a little bit of strength lacking around the stabilizing joints. And if I can then continue to do that, and, and after a few months, I can do 30 seconds, without wobbling, that means that those little stabilizing muscles are stronger. Well, uh, you know, sometimes you need stronger stabilizing muscles to, to be able to perform effectively in endurance sports. So it's not just about prime mover strength either, is it?
1: No, absolutely not. And that sort of, that motor and coordination is, in, is incredibly important. I mean, it's important for sports performance, but it's also very important for long-term health and cognition. And when you look at all the different types of movement and how they prevent cognitive decline... The ones that involve balance and coordination seem to be th- the best. And it's because it's it's an additional mm. um stress, I'm gonna call it, but it's an additional stimulus for plasticity and adaptation in the brain, which is what you need. You need to tell your brain it's still required. And that kind of like complex like movement um is 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 the best way to do that. And so, right, you can stand on one leg, you can do yoga, you can do slack lining, you can skateboard, um, like literally any of those things anything that cha- you can zumba da- like dance is one of the best like in the literature dance is one of the best ways to 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 uh prevent cognitive decline it's amazing you're moving and you're challenging your 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 motor um sort of and balance at the same time so again it doesn't matter what it is it's just you know which which whichever of those you enjoy uh, uh do it and it's incredibly important both for sports performance but also for long term health
0: and generally, I guess, if you're dancing, you're in a community and you're probably going to end up laughing at yourself, which are two yeah, more exactly. things that are um, yeah. uh, sort of markers of longevity, aren't they? Yeah, so, absolutely. So just to wrap up then, Tommy, before I ask you for some uh, points on how people can get started, triathletes tend to be way too focused. And we talked, you mentioned that briefly earlier on their aerobic conditioning. Mm. I know one of your blog posts on your um, your own website talks about explosiveness and sprinting. Mm. Brad Cairns is a big fan of sprinting. Triathletes yeah. tend to keep away from that, either doing stuff very easy like walking or sprinting, and they're sort of quite a narrow bandwidth in terms of the intensity of the exercise they do. So, um, And I'm quite fond of telling triathletes now that firstly, you've got to worry about human performance before you worry about athletic performance. So um, specific advice to triathletes on how they might start to adjust some of their training prescription on a, on a regular basis to just to, but but which will give them a better performance in their races in the end.
1: Yes. So so I think again, you know, the the same, I think the same tenets apply to the triathlete who doesn't do any resistance training as it does to just like somebody who wants to live a longer and healthier life. Mm -hmm. And it is one, so like minimum effective dose per muscle group, one to four sets per week. And like, like a a true newbie can gain strength and muscle with like one set a week per muscle group, like one set of push-ups a week is enough to start seeing like, it's almost nothing. You think about how little that is. Um, And so like one to four sets per week, maybe do it split over two sessions. So you maybe do one to three sets per muscle group twice a week. Um, And again, you're taking it to something close to, and again, like, Failure is this thing that is big in the in the literature. But I'm basically saying just, just get into the point where it's really hard and you don't think you can do anymore. Right. That's it. Doesn't have you don't have to like fall over, doesn't have to hurt, nothing like that. Like you get to a point where you're like, okay, uh, this is hard. I'm, I'm just gonna stop there for now. And you'll and you'll get better and you'll, you'll adapt over time. And and that's essentially it. So if you do like one lower body, a couple of upper body, like push and pull, um, like that that that's literally it. And like that's that's where I'd start. You don't need to do anything unilateral or complex you don't need to do multiple different exercises none of that just like one exercise that covers multiple muscle groups you know twice a week for 20 or 30 minutes that's it um, and the one of the one of the reasons why this becomes really important is that when you do a lot of endurance volume you change the type of muscle fibers that you have in your muscles so you have your like type one and type two, slow twitch fast twitch muscle fibers when you look at like marathon runners and tour de france cyclists like they have incredible incredible capacity to move at speed for long periods of time right like a marathon runner runs a marathon at a speed that i probably couldn't even sprint um however if you ask them to jump on a box they'd get in trouble because they've lost those explosive muscle fibers And if you want longevity in a sport and in life, you need to have those fast twitch muscle fibers because those are the ones that save your life when you stumble and you don't, or you have to grab something quickly so you don't fall over. Um, And that's what keeps you out of the hospital when you're 75 years old. So doing resistance training, um, sort of power strength training, that's going to maintain or build up some of those types of muscle fibers. And those are the ones that are going to save your life in 30 years time so it may not matter right now for your performance necessarily although i do think it will reduce injury doing that kind of training like long term those those are the things that are going to be really important um for for your sort of health and health and performance i
0: guess in life okay so I know you said that it's uh, difficult for you to give short answers, but I know, I know you've got. I know <laughs> you've got. No, 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 no. I'm not complaining, but I also know that you've, we've got a hard stop on this as well. So um, we're going to have to try and find a compromise in the middle here. So for people who've listened to this and they're really interested in what you've said, which uh, our chat. If, any, if anybody's not interested in what Tommy said, please let me know. Um, I'll cancel <laughs> you from the subscription list um, because I'm super interested in everything Tommy says. Uh, so. People who are interested in this and they thought, you know, I quite like what Tommy said. I want to improve my lifestyle. Some simple steps to get started in 60 seconds. Okay. So the the most
1: important thing is, right, we've talked about these pillars, these different areas. I think for each individual, what is the thing that's going to be easiest for you to implement? What's what's the lowest hanging fruit? Is it when you go to bed? Is it cooking a meal and eating it with your spouse? Is it finding some time to do movement snacks during the day? Um, if you start with one they have knock on effects so we so we know that as people improve one improve in one area they're more likely to improve in others so don't think that the, all the things that i do or the whole list that i gave you is something that you have to do all in one go because you won't do it find the one thing that you think oh yeah i can do that i'd like to do that do it for a month and then you know sort of again eat an elephant one bite at a time
0: brilliant is that 60, 60 seconds, seconds you've, 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 you've <laughs> yeah you've hit the mark on that one um okay tommy fantastic as usual um i've learned a lot today which was the primary objective i hope the listeners have learned which then that ticks two boxes but so thank you very much for your time once again um i look forward to in, inviting you back for uh, a third go sometime i look in forward to being
1: back yeah absolutely i uh, really enjoyed talking to you uh, as ever huge pleasure to be here um and i, I hope it's useful thanks
0: thank you to tommy for joining me once again on the show there are links to all of today's discussion topics in the show notes below i really appreciate you making the time each week to listen to the high performance human podcast if you haven't done so already please join the conversation today by subscribing for free on itunes so that you never miss another episode and please look into joining our High Performance Human podcast Facebook page. Okay, that's all for this week. I'll be back in seven days' time with another great guest. But for now, please remember that being a high-performance human is a journey. So stay healthy, stay focused, and please keep trying to be a little bit better than you were yesterday.